Hi, welcome to The Pipeline, all things CD and DevOps podcast by the CD Foundation. I am your host, Jacqueline Salinas, Director of Ecosystem and Community Development. Thank you for joining us for Episode 7 of Season 2. Our topic today is the state of DevOps, and I am joined by two community members from CircleCI and Puppet. Welcome to Michael Stanky and Alana Brown. And if you're not familiar with our guests, Michael Stanky is VP of Platform at CircleCI running SRE Security and Tooling. Prior to this, he worked worked at Puppet, running Puppet Enterprise Engineering, Platform Engineering, as well as SRE. He is an established author where he has co-authored the State of DevOps Reports and State of Software Delivery. He is also a popular speaker and has attended various DevOps Days, CTO Summits, Puppetize Conferences, and more. He founded the package repository EPEL and wrote a book on SSH in 2005. Welcome, Michael. And also joining us, Alana Brown. She is the mastermind behind the the State of DevOps report, which has become the most widely referenced body of DevOps research available since she launched it in 2012. Having overseen over seven years of data gathered from more than 30,000 technical professionals, Alana brings an informed perspective around the world between IT performance, DevOps practices, culture, organizational performance, and other elements that affect business outcomes. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am very excited to chat about the State of DevOps report 2020. But before we dive into the State of DevOps report, um, let's kick off the episode with our favorite segment called My DevOps Journey. So Alana, I'll begin with you. Can you tell us your journey into DevOps? Sure, Jacqueline. And thank you so much for having us today. Um, I started at Puppet in 2012, and I knew I wanted to do primary research because there really were no vendors in our space, at least, doing primary research. Most of the analysts were doing primary research at that time. And so I really wanted to start this research project. And so I created the State of DevOps survey. And, um, you know, the first year we launched the survey back in 2012, it was really well received. And we knew it was something that we wanted to keep examining and exploring. And I have led our DevOps research agenda at Puppet ever since. So, um, you know, I've and at Puppet, we've worked with thousands of customers um, to help them, you know, understand DevOps and to really adopt DevOps practices and scale those practices more broadly across their organizations. And so it's been a, a really interesting ride. Thank you so much for sharing with us. And Michael, what's been your DevOps journey like? Well, uh, I guess I started out kind of in technical infrastructure and system administration. And um, I happened to cross paths with uh, two of the people that founded Puppet pretty early on because we all worked at the same company, though not at the exact same time. And they said, hey, there's this thing called DevOps Days coming up. Uh, you should see if you can make it out to to the Valley and, and, you know, come submit a talk about what you're doing in big enterprise, because everybody that's thinking about DevOps and velocity at that time was all doing web web ops. And so I submitted a thing about, you know, Hey, DevOps works outside of web ops. And I ended up speaking at that event and 
um, you know, from there, just met a community of, of practitioners that was amazing. And uh, a couple of years later, went to go work at Puppet and worked there for uh, quite a long time, uh, eight years, uh, well, a lot with Alana close by. And um, and then recently left to go work at Circle CI, where I run the platform organization there. So, um, you know, kind of been around in, in terms of being a practitioner and then also more on the vendor side and supply side. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Now, let's dive into the state of DevOps report today. So in 2020, you published the ninth state of DevOps report. How is this one different from previous reports and what were some of the focus areas? Um, I can go ahead and start. So, you know, we've been doing this since 2012. So the state of DevOps report is the uh, longest running and most widely referenced study in this space on the topic of DevOps. And, um, you know, we started out in 2012, you know, just trying to understand the DevOps landscape, why it mattered, if people were adopting it. Um, what people thought of it. So, you know, it's pretty broad. Um, and every year since then, we've kind of expanded on different areas. So we've covered things like organizational culture, uh, organizational performance, transformational leadership. Um, and then in 2018, we pivoted to really talking about how do you actually adopt DevOps practices? Because we found that there's so many people um, who were really struggling to adopt just basic DevOps practices and really needed more prescriptive guidance on what to do and how to advance their DevOps initiative. So in 2018, we um, built a model called the DevOps evolution model, which has five stages and it... Um, shows what the key practices are at each stage and what some of the foundational practices are that you need to adopt in order to achieve those higher and higher levels of evolution. And in 2019, we expanded upon this even further by diving into security and looking at how security is integrated into the software delivery lifecycle. And then in 2020, we continued the same thread and we really wanted to focus on two structural barriers that we find within a lot of organizations that we believe are holding them back from uh, scaling DevOps practices more broadly. And those two things are change management and then also organizational structure. So the two themes for 2020 were applying DevOps principles and practices to change management and then also um, uh, you know, adopting this platform approach to software delivery. So I'll stop there. And Michael, if you want to jump in, feel free to. Yeah, I think the 2020 side of things got really interesting because I, every firm has some type of practice around change management. And a lot of people, you know, particularly practitioners, when they hear about things about change management, basically their eyes gloss over or they start groaning or running away or whatever it is. And you know, we were realizing that differentiation really comes from the speed of change. And so we were trying to figure out how do we measure this? How do we talk about how change has evolved from, you know, kind of a classic ITIL ticket-based system with many meetings and handovers and checkpoints to a modern system where, you know, approvals localized and it's, it's to the people that know what the work's doing and how work happens and moves through a system. And obviously, you know, our survey covered um, firms at all aspects of that spectrum. And then the other side of that was just kind of this internal platform thing. The questions actually started out more with self-service. That was kind of the goal was to figure out 
how, how is self-service helping enable DevOps transformations for people? And really what we learned was we were kind of asking the wrong question. It was more about how do you build out common practices for others to build upon? And that became the platform uh, part of the discussion and the research. And um, I found that fascinating. Of course, I run a platform organization, so that's not probably the, the biggest surprise for people. But uh, you know, how do you how do you build out a bunch of common things so that every team that is building out software doesn't have to build those same common things? You know, end times. So those were kind of the, the main two points. I was excited about it mostly because I got to rant about change management, which is definitely a hobby of mine. <laughs> Thank you. Um, d- did the pandemic affect your your survey or the types of questions you asked this year? or excuse me, last year in 2020? You know, it definitely affected the timeline for the survey. We normally would launch in you know July and we had to push that out just because there's so much going on in that time frame. So we did end up pushing it out to November. But as far as the questions go, we didn't really change kind of our questions or methodology because of the pandemic. One thing that we did do that I'm super proud of, though, is um, with the generous support of all of our sponsors, we did donate all of our sponsorship funds to COVID-19 relief organizations. So the World Health Organization's COVID Solidarity Fund, uh, No Kid Hungry, and Doctors Without Borders. And uh, that was a pretty proud moment for all of us. Wow, that's awesome. Thank you so much because, you know, uh, this this pandemic really has hit a lot of a lot of communities hard. It really has. Yep. Um, so on to our next question. We also hear a lot about internal platforms from our end user members, such as Fidelity and eBay. Your report highlighted internal platforms, but we also see a debate about whether companies should really be developing and maintaining internal platforms rather than focusing on their core business. What is your perspective on this? I'll, I'll take this one to start, Alana. I, I think... Sure. Really, the debate comes from you end up debating semantics about what an internal platform is. I don't think there's actually a lot of debate about if you can do things once rather than an infinite number of times, you should probably optimize for that. Um, And and I think that's what a lot of internal platforming starts out as is, you know, even if you just have an operations team and they start to automate, say, provisioning of hosts, um, and this is, you know, even in pre-cloud days, it was, okay, well, if every host I stamp out looks the same, then every team that has to go build upon these hosts knows how it starts out. And so they know what what sets of tra- changes or deltas have to get applied to get their application or their service stood up. And that's really kind of the same mentality that carries forward in an internal platform. It just might be a bigger thing or more sets of common practices. The things that we're looking for in internal platforms are, you know, self-serviceability so that you can scale out at a, a rate that's higher than human to human contact. Um, We're looking for reusable components. And then as you get into more mature uh, platform organizations, you might see things like building reusable components or building shared tools or shared libraries that maybe have been resiliency tested, you know, for availability, or they've been um, validated in, you know, multi versions of database backends or things like that. So that, you know, once you adopt a set of common tooling, you get a set of advantages and they end up being more like the business people on the, or the people building uh, services end up more assembling, uh, you know, things that are akin to Lego blocks um, to build out their business logic versus just writing, you know, I have to go write a connection pooling algorithm for the 50th time that, I, you know, why am, I, why am I still doing this? And so as you get more mature, you may have more shared tooling, more shared libraries um, out, out to the, up to the, the product development teams or the, you know, whoever's shipping your, your business value out to your internal or external customers. 
I, I guess I haven't seen a lot of debate about that. When we did see the debate, it was, you know, you need an internal platform. People are thinking, well, do I have to run a platform as a service? Do I need Cloud Foundry or Heroku? Or somebody else is saying, you know, do I need to buy this thing from VMware? And it's like, let's talk more about mindset and organizational practice than really about what the what the technology turns in or out to be. Yeah. I don't know if you have anything. And I totally agree with that. And I think there, there, there is a tendency to over architect things and start with tooling in our space. Right. Um, but I would say that for organizations that are looking at this approach, um, I think the things that you need to consider are, is your current org structure holding you back? Are things too complex right now? Is there too much cognitive load on either individual developers or specific teams? And where can you take some of that load off? And I do think that the answer is in, you know, being able to apply more automation, doing things once, sharing practices and things like that, which are the things that a platform team would provide. And, you know, um, I, I, just talked to the platform uh, team lead for HelloFresh. And she was telling me that initially they had these green and blue teams, but as they started to grow, and this was a, a growing startup, as they started to grow, the complexity within those teams just grew to be way too large. And so that's when they decided to divide the teams by domain. And that's when they really started accelerating their efforts to uh, adopt this platform mindset and approach. But, you know, one of the things that was really important to them, is, as Michael said, is that they really did think through what should the mindset be? What should our approach really be? What are we going to offer? for a self-service and thought through those challenges versus starting at the tooling layer. Yeah, I think a lot of people need to look at common points to extract and say, okay, if four or five, six teams are doing this thing, can I get it so that one team is doing it and doing it really well because it's actually within their purview and not just a means to get somewhere else. And that's been one of the things that I think has made us successful with our platform organization. And then the other thing that I think people get into with platform pretty quickly is ROI around platform because you start to figure out, well, how is how do I know this is meaningful or how don't I know it's meaningful? And there's, I look at something, if I can build it once and have it be built very well and a bunch of teams can leverage it, that's high ROI, that's high leverage. Right. In some cases, it's, it's a better ROI for me to hire somebody in a platform tool development team than it is for me to hire six engineers elsewhere. You know, if I put one in each product development team, um, but they're all still spending time on connection pooling or resiliency testing or, you know, whatever. It's like, well, that's not really leverage for that team to, to make them achieve their business outcome faster. And so um, I guess ROI on platform, I think, is still a, a place that's relatively unexplored in terms of overall formulas and metrics, but it's still interesting to me. And so that's probably what I'll be spending some of the next year on. <laughs> Very cool. The pro the report also highlights the need for a product mindset for scaling DevOps and internal platforms. What advice do you have for teams looking to improve their product mindset? I can jump in on this one because we asked this question in the report. And actually we found a very strong correlation between uh, having a product mindset and higher levels of DevOps evolution. And so some of the things that we looked at were things, you know, classic product management or modern, I should say modern product management techniques. Like the platform team is consistently gathering requirements from their internal stakeholders, or there is someone on the team who is acting in a management product management capacity that really is advocating for that customer focused mindset within the platform. Um, you could have a roadmap for the platform. 
Um, the platform team helps with a number of things, including onboarding new developers to the platform. And they also work really closely with the rest of the teams to test those new capabilities. And um, I would say in addition to that, like I think one of the, the things that's really important when you're trying to understand the ROI of your platform is figuring out what are the measures of success. If that's developer satisfaction or developer happiness, how are you going to measure that over time? Um, and then there's other measures of success as well. So the state of DevOps popularized these four metrics that um, are sometimes known as the DORA metrics. Um, and you know, I think looking at those metrics on a consistent basis is also very helpful. Yeah, I think the other thing we've seen with product management mindset is that it doesn't always mean that you have a classic somebody, a product person from the product management organization or whatever doing that. You can have engineers or engineering managers kind of playing that role. It's really about are you are you reacting to what your customers want and need? And are you know, are you doing research? Are you getting feedback? And um, I definitely had a team where they were like, well, how should I learn more about this? And I handed them a couple of project management books or, or product management books and said, hey, here's kind of the stuff that we're looking for here. And several of them saw that as even, you know, career advancement and career opportunity, like to, you know, get a little bit broader and get a little new horizon from an engineering standpoint. Some of them read a whole bunch of it and said, yep, I understand it. And I don't want to do that. And other people said, yeah, this is great. I'm really into this. I'm really happy for the opportunity. Thank you. So what will be the focus for 2021 and how can our CDF community get involved? Yeah, that's funny you ask because we are in the process of um, putting together our 2021 survey and um, we have had a bunch of ideas. It's always fun ideating. That's the fun part. Um, but I think this is our 10 year anniversary. So we really kind of want to talk about, you know, what are the things that are still holding organizations back from fully scaling their DevOps practices and initiatives within their organizations? We've covered a lot of this in previous reports, but um, this is an opportunity to kind of go back to what we thought back in 2012, what we predicted back then, what's happened since then, and kind of really examine what's happened in the past decade of DevOps and then looking forward to the next decade, what can we anticipate then? So those are kind of the, some of the things that we're looking at. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to kind of take a survey of a survey, if that makes sense, but like look at kind of what we've done over the last 10 years and figure out what's held true, what really hasn't. And like, I would imagine there were problems we first started talking about in 2012, 2013 that really haven't been overcome in a sustainable, repeatable, you know, formulaic way. It's just kind of maybe maybe one company was able to get lucky and overcome a hurdle. Um, you know, have we achieved all the practices and, uh, you know, outcomes that we thought DevOps was going to going to take the industry and do? And, and no, we, we haven't. And so it's going to be fun to kind of look at what are those barriers and, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that somehow I'll be able to highlight some anti-patterns that we've seen through over the years because that's one of the things that I usually try and add to the report is, you know, just, just some of the things of what not to do or what we've seen not work. And when you get to work with customers for years and you kind of see some of the things that make you, you know, scratch your head and you walk away and you think, wow, that, that they took all the words I said and that's where they landed. That's weird. Or they took all the words that, you know, all the, all the words that the researchers have said and that's, that's how they, they extracted that into their own culture or their own set of beliefs. And I think that's... Um, that will be fun to write about just from a 10 year, you know, kind of a checkpoint on a timeline standpoint. Um, but, um, you know, generally you asked again, how, how can the CDF community get involved? 
the number one thing we can do is actually get a larger sample and get people from different areas. You know, we are very good at reaching out to people that are already very aware of this survey and, and the report. And so if we can reach a, a wider set of people or people that are maybe um, not classically in a dev or an ops role, but maybe you're in uh, technical procurement or maybe you're in security or maybe you're uh, a middle manager or a C-level or a director, those are the people that we usually get a much smaller sample size from. And so as we try and interpret our data to tell us what those people are thinking or how they're operating, you know, we're doing the best we can, but a larger sample size just only makes it that much stronger. So that would be one of the key things that we'd love to see from the CDF outreach. That's that we can help definitely with. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to the net, the 10th anniversary of the state of DevOps report. Um, any key learnings from the 10 years or almost 10 years of, of running this report? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's really no matter what label you put on this movement, I think there are some enduring principles that will outlast any buzzword um, or label. And I think those things are around building empathy, breaking down silos, creating fast feedback loops, automating more of your work and making that work Um you know, better for the people who have to do the work. And um, yeah, so I think those are kind of some of the enduring values of DevOps that I see being carried forward in the next decade. And Michael, any, any key learnings from you? I think I've been fascinated by how much technical practitioners have, have really just, you know, come to the come to, come to look at the, the research body as like a very important thing for what they do and how they do their work. Uh, that surprises me. I, I didn't think there was going to be that much kind of, I'll call it academic interest in the research, but there really has been. And it's really been cited in, in a number of, of places. And so now you can see kind of people building that and then taking their own sets of research on top of it and pivoting it from there or, you know, combining several data sources to try and tell a story that's maybe slightly adjacent to what the one that we've told classically. And I get really excited about that. I think the other thing is because this is the 10 year anniversary, we're going to go try and find some of the people that were very early on in the DevOps movement that maybe we haven't heard from in a while. And, you know, somewhat of a where are they now segment a la vh1 in the early 2000s but i think also you know we, we want to make sure that you know what happened to them what was it what did their good ideas just work and they stopped talking about it outbound did they you know go find a new career uh were some of their ideas just so terrible they were embarrassed and crawled in a hole i doubt it's that but you know i do i would just love to hear from some of these voices that um were really really involved early on and then kind of just faded into the background while other people took the movement from there so um that's one of the things i'm really looking forward to for this year yeah looking forward to that too well thank you so much um it's been such a pleasure to have both of you today to talk about the state of devops report um like i mentioned all of us have been really looking forward to this episode um so Thank you again for, for joining us. Um, and I hope that we we make this an annual thing too, where you come and talk to us about the State of DevOps report year over year. We would love that. Thank yeah, you so much, so much for having us. us.